Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Unidentified hackers broke into Twitter accounts of many big-name users, including former President Barack Obama and Bill Gates. What exactly happened? We'll chat with tech analyst Carmi Levy about that. Hamilton continues to examine the homelessness encampment issue on public properties downtown. What are they going to do about it? And a veteran sports media executive joins the team to help with the bid for the Hamilton Commonwealth Games. Scott Moore joins us to talk about his involvement. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A couple of breaking stories about what's happening on social media. Uh, Several verified users, including big names like former President Barack Obama, uh, presidential candidate now Joe Biden, Bill Gates, uh, Michael Bloomberg, others, uh, were hacked yesterday on Twitter. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of angst about what happened, why it happened, and the ramifications of that. And uh, we're just hearing stories now that uh, apparently Russia tried to uh, hack into the, uh, well, a couple of sites here to try to steal information about a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, the, you know, we'd like to think that we're secure when we're on any of these social media platforms, especially on Twitter. We've already had some concerns with what's happening on Facebook. But apparently, uh, well, that's not the case. Joining us to talk about this is Carmi Levy. Carmi, of course, is a tech analyst and a, uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Carmi, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. I'm so glad to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. What's going on? Wow. I mean, you know, talk about uh, a whirlwind of insecure activity. First, the Twitter Bitcoin scam hits, and then this um, Russian hacking. You know, they always say that security issues hit in threes, so I'm kind of waiting for the other shooters to drop. We're <laughs> going to have another headline by the end of the day. I mean, this is this is big stuff. I mean, you know, we've we've heard about people getting hacked before, and and the Bitcoin issue, as as I read into this, Carmi, uh, is bad enough. Uh, obviously, they tried to imitate and pretend that they were Barack Obama or Joe Biden or whatever, and and solicited Bitcoin from some people, but uh, Twitter apparently doesn't know what else they've done. That's a little troubling. Yeah, that. What the scary thing here is that it looks like Twitter employees were compromised using a well, what's what's what Twitter now calls a coordinated coordinated social engineering attack, which basically means they probably received some kind of phishing email, they responded to it, and uh, then the hackers, of course, reeled them in from that point. Uh, Anyone who's ever clicked on a button or a link, been taken to a wrong website, suffered a ransomware hit, uh, they're familiar with that. This is kind of like that, but on a much larger, more sophisticated scale. The scary thing is that Twitter, which we kind of trust them, we trust them if we do our part with security that, you know, we maintain safe password protocol, we use dual-factor authentication, we use all the security features that they give us to keep our accounts safe, to keep bad guys from getting in, that they'll do their part too, that our, our account will be safe. And now here what we're seeing is that isn't the case. They, what, what happened here was uh, virtually all of the high-profile targets uh, have since released a uh, statement saying that they were using safe password protocol. They did have dual-factor authentication enabled, yet they were still compromised. Nothing they did could have stopped this. This was all an internal Twitter thing. It's like somebody breaking into the bank and directly accessing your account, uh, even though you've put every lock that you can possibly possibly put on it. It is frightening because it means you and I have no control over our digital destiny. It means that no matter what we do, we can still be attacked no matter how famous or not we are. It's probably one of the scariest breaches I've seen in all the time I've been covering this. Uh, and just, uh, just so people are clear on this, and maybe even, Carmi, for those who maybe just don't only have a cursory knowledge, and they may still be using Twitter but not understand all the, the nuts and bolts about it, as I understand it, uh, as you've just mentioned, it were not necessarily the individual accounts that have been hacked. It was uh, the service itself. 
That is correct. Um, is that uh, is that you know? And the reason being is that there were multiple accounts that were beha- displaying this behavior. These rogue posts that clearly the individuals who own these accounts did not post. They said it wasn't them. Um, and uh, and they went up at the same time when Twitter, the company, tried to pull them down. Uh, they were put right back up you know, seconds or minutes later. So uh, this was, you know, there's a lot of resourcing behind this. It suggests something of an inside job that they bypassed all of the protective tools and processes that Twitter put in place to prevent this. Um, It is about as scary as you can imagine, you know, like we often talk about the U.S. military, uh, that someone gets into the combat information control center of a nuclear aircraft carrier and can now control when aircraft launch and when they drop bombs. That's as scary as it is. It means that there's nobody at home to stop this from happening, that that the, the Twitter employees, the administrative employees who control the platform, that they were in on this in some way. And now we're seeing accusations online, unfounded, but we're, we're following them up, is that people were paid. Twitter employees were paid to provide this, which is even more frightening. Which might explain some of the concern that was also raised when this started happening. Because as you've seen, Carmi, uh, there's a, an accusation now that it took Twitter almost five hours to respond to this, which is, uh, they, in other words, somebody knew it was going on and they didn't actually do it. It's like watching the house burn down before you call the fire department. It's one of the hallmarks of proper response, proper protocol when you are victimized is you've got to get in front of it. You've got to say everything that you know and you've got to uh, be brutally honest even if it hurts um, because silence is not the answer and Twitter uh, as we've seen before because this isn't the first time Twitter's been uh, attacked of course you know 330 million people use it regularly it's going to be uh, a juicy target for hackers all over the place Um, but uh, historically this is a company that has not been very effective at responding to security related issues that they are somewhat slow off the mark. Uh, and I can, you know, to a certain extent, I can understand that. Um, you want to go public when you have information to share. In other words, it takes time to get to that point before you're willing to share that with the public. But at the same time, uh, the clock is ticking and you don't have a lot of time to deal with. So uh, Twitter's got to look at not just the tools that it uses, but the processes that its people follow. It has to look at how it hires people, how it trains them, how it monitors them. Um, because clearly they dropped the ball on a number of levels here. And uh, organizationally, it means that you and I can no longer trust by default what we see on Twitter. And uh, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We're talking about Twitter today, but this could happen to anyone now. What if it happens to Facebook? What if it happens to Instagram or Snapchat uh, or TikTok? All of the platforms that we use and supposedly trust, well, we can't trust them anymore. So what about that tweet that Donald Trump sent the other day? Can we trust that that was him, or can he just go and claim that he was hacked after the fact? We're into a new world here, and I'm not necessarily sure that that's a good thing. Shouldn't they have been a little more proactive about this, Carmi? I mean, Twitter has been, as you've just outlined, basically the platform of choice by most high-profile people, whether it's Trump or Bill Gates or anybody else. I mean, you know, in other words, it's an unfiltered way to get your message across or to make a point or whatever cases, as opposed to calling a press conference and having the media show up and things of this nature. Uh, so... You know, there's a U.S. presidential election going on right now, and of course, both Biden and Trump and, and many other people that are seeking public office use Twitter all the time. They've got to be having second thoughts about that now. Yeah, that's the scary thing is that we, that that level of trust in the technology, in the platform, in the Twitter brand has now been eroded. 
Um, and it's probably never going to come back because now there's going always going to be some kind of doubt. Uh, did someone take over that account? Um, and it opens up uh, an avenue for people to deny that they were responsible for what they posted online. Nope, sorry, it wasn't me. I was hacked. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the digital equivalent of the dog ate my homework. And of course, we <laughs> all know that that's not true, but it's just enough to introduce some kind of doubt. And of course, the less we trust these platforms, then the more uh, troublesome it becomes when they're used for important things like statecraft, like diplomacy. Uh, you know, you can start a war on Twitter. We certainly saw that in Trump's exchanges with North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you can't trust the vehicle, the channel, the tool, who can you trust? And so this is very dangerous new territory. And Twitter uh, really has a ton of explaining to do. I'm not quite sure how they how they get there. Um, but really, nothing short of a full overhaul of the way this company works uh, is called for. And I think at some point, you know, we're, we've been seeing rumblings of calls for regulation of the social media space, that big tech needs to be held accountable. I'm guessing that those arguments are going to get louder in the days and weeks to come, because a lot of people are seriously rattled about this particular event. Our heads going to roll here? Oh, I think they have to. And, and certainly I think the employees who were involved, they're probably already gone. But I think, you know, not just not the ones who were pressing the buttons or pulling the trigger, uh, the ones who were overseeing them, the ones responsible for internal security protocol. Um, they had the keys to the kingdom. They had ultimate responsibility and they failed miserably on all counts. Uh, they, too, uh, should be shown the door. Uh, and more importantly, Twitter needs to now be pub- very public about what it is going to do going forward to ensure that this never happens again, that it has the right people in place with the right tools and the right training um, so that they can put this behind them once and for all. Is there any way of tracing or trying to determine exactly who is responsible for this? You know, probably not. Uh, you know, they were uh, very sophisticated attackers. They used Bitcoin wallets to, as a target. So the money, you know, and this is well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars of what they got, is now already gone. So, uh, you know, anyone who was dumb enough to donate, well, you're not getting that money back. Um, that's one. Uh, there is no free lunch. Two, uh, they probably won't find the perpetrators because I'm certain if they were sophisticated enough to launch a phishing, socially engineered attack on Twitter, uh, and pull it off, then they're probably smart enough to get away with it to cover all of their tracks six ways from Sunday. Um, of course, we will at some point know more about what happened within Twitter, uh, and that will be important information. But in terms of the perpetrators, uh, we rarely figure out who, you know, there's the exceptional case um, where an indiv- individual is fingered, but that's usually when they're amateurs and dumb, and that is not, neither is the case here. I mean, we're well past the, I, I think, the mindset, aren't we, now that uh, the people that are responsible for this are, you know, some young guy that's uh, sitting in his basement, <laughs> his parents' basement with a tinfoil hat on. Uh, these are professionals, and, and, and the damage they're rotting here. I mean, as you and I talked about a couple of years ago, there was a guy right here in Ancaster. Uh, he's serving time in, in jail in California right now for a long, long time because of some of the hacking he did. This, this is a serious crime. It is. Um, and no, you're right. This is, this is not just kids. Uh, this isn't just people forgetting their passwords or kids taking advantage of people who don't update their passwords or use the same passwords, the same easy-to-guess passwords. Um, this is, uh, you know, coordinated, uh, heavily resourced. You know, a lot of people say it's potentially state-sponsored. That's certainly within the realm of possibility. But even if it isn't, it's a business. And, and you know, we, when we go online, even if a, a service like Twitter is free, the data that we're sharing on it has a worth to it. And we have become juicy targets. 
uh, to uh, criminal operations, to uh, the mob, which is, you know, the mafia, which is increasingly moving online. It's a lot easier to steal via code than to steal with a gun. Uh, and so it's bad and it's getting worse. And targets like Twitter are uh, just, you know, kind of ripe for the picking. Uh, and as we've seen, they're a lot more vulnerable than we thought they were, uh, you know, yesterday morning. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things I said as soon as it happened. This is going to keep me up at night. Sure enough, I was up last night. I'm probably going to be up for a few more nights because uh, I don't see any signs that the industry has really gotten it and that they're willing to take the steps to, uh, you can't eliminate this kind of thing from happening, but at least reduce the frequency, reduce the impact, and reduce the p- potential for it happening in the first place. But what, what tools do they have at their disposal? I mean, you know, I, I thought, for instance, when we, you know, started using two-factor authentication, I said, oh, that's going to be great now. I'm going to be fine. You know, I'm safer now. Apparently not. Yeah, well, I mean, it's great for us, right, because it's almost yeah. like, you know, dual-factor authentication is like when, in addition to your password, we use, say, a fingerprint authentication or something like that, or a PIN or, or a, a security challenge question um, or facial recognition. And that works really well from what we call an end-user perspective, you and I logging in on our phones or on, on another device. Um, but internal to, to Twitter, you need a lot more locks on the door. And so you need multi-factor authentication. And that's sort of the problem is that dual-factor authentication works really well on phones that have biometric readers on them. But it doesn't work so well on, say, a laptop or a desktop computer. Um, or once you've gotten inside the perimeter at Twitter, uh, you know, it, it's fairly easy to breach those two locks. And then, you know, you've got the keys to the kingdom. So, uh, you know, the answer isn't one magic bullet technology or tool. It is multiple layers of security, each one of which kind of overlaps everything above and below it so that uh, you force hackers to go through all of those layers. And chances are they won't get through all of them. Uh, obviously, internal to Twitter, there weren't enough layers. And I'm sure there are a lot of companies now, not just social media companies, but any company that are looking at their security processes now going, we got to add those layers too. And we got to have those hard conversations about whether we're doing enough because clearly we aren't. Carmi, always great to get your insight into a very troubling story uh, such as this. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Thanks, Bill. Great being here. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Carmi Levy, tech analyst, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The issue of uh, tent encampments and uh, public property uh, is going to be dealt with again by city council. This has been going on, well, for quite some time, but more so, of course, during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic over the last couple of months. The city has actually torn down two large encampments, uh, one at uh, Jackie Wilson Park, not too far from General Hospital, of course, and the other at the uh, former John A. McDonald Secondary School site right downtown. Uh, but there have been other ones that are popping up, some with just two or three people, others somewhat larger. Uh, there are those that are advocating for these to stay, at least during the, the crisis itself, the COVID crisis, uh, because of the circumstance that we're dealing with. One group, of course, the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team, called HamSmart, uh, are advocating for this and have actually been before council to talk about this. And uh, when council heard about these pleas, uh, some were sympathetic. And you heard Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg earlier in the program today uh, saying that uh, in the short term this may have to happen, but they, they're looking for a long-term solution. Uh, and so there was some empathy, I think, and some sympathy by, on the part of some councillors. Others, uh, well, like Councillor Cherry Whitehead, well, not so much. I would hope that we understand the predicament that Hamlin's in, what uh, services we provide, and that we do need to provide compassion, which we always do. But encampments are not the solution, nor would the community want to see encampments. Uh, so the debate rages on, and uh, in the meantime, bylaws are enforcing the bylaws, which say you can't do that. 
I want to give you some angles on this, though, that you may not have heard of previously. Uh, and first of all, I want to bring uh, Nadine Watson into the discussion. Nadine is a staff lawyer with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Nadine, so glad you could join us today. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Bill. Explain to us exactly what the dilemma is here. Right. So the dilemma is essentially that you have these encampments popping up in the city of Hamilton. You'll have your constituents who aren't really happy, and then you'll have other groups who are advocating and have been advocating since the beginning of this pandemic that encampments not be dismantled. And so those groups, which include our clinic as well, we're just relying on a set of human rights protocols, policies, et cetera. So we're relying on the Human Rights Code, the Charter, um, some United Nations documentation that, one, said that you shouldn't dismantle encampments during a pandemic because it is a public health risk. But on top of that, I think there needs to be an understanding that encampments are really a result of just the lack of adequate and affordable housing. So individuals living in encampments they live, I mean, they're choosing to sleep rough for multiple reasons. So some have mental health challenges that would kind of preclude them from functioning in shelter. Others have drug or alcohol dependencies and so are kicked out of shelter as a symptom of their disability. Others have animals and some shelters don't permit animals. Others are married or in common law relationships. Um, and some shelters also don't accommodate couples. So you have just a lot of reasons as to why folks are choosing to sleep rough, sleep rough or pitch a tent. Um, and so you create these communities, um, which we're seeing now, which are the encampments in the city. And, and I know that people are saying, well, you know, there's a bylaw, you're not supposed to do this. Uh, you, you shouldn't have these tent encampments. But you, you know what? We're not supposed to have refugee camps either. But, you know, right. in dire circumstances, it happens. Uh, and that you have to do something in the short term. But one of the arguments, and I'm sure you heard this from some of the counselors over the last couple of days, uh, you just talked about the fact that if you break these camps up, that it's a public health issue. They would argue that keeping the camps there is a public health issue because they simply can't supply the services or don't supply the services because of cost, whatever the case might be. How do you respond to that? And that's the thing. I don't think we're necessarily uh, advocating for a permanent encampment. I think we were misunderstood on that point. We're saying during this time, right, where if the city is unable to provide alternative uh, housing for these folks during this time and during these crises, um, I think it's fair that the city should be working towards arranging secured spaces, such as shelters, hotels, interim and permanent housing with the appropriate support. If the city is unable to do that, then we're asking for just innovation, some innovative solutions to the issue, like low barrier and accessible spaces for folks to go to, or an exemption in the bylaws to allow for people to pitch tents. And this isn't completely out of order. Um, it's happening in a couple of cities across, across Ontario. So London has allowed temporary encampments and individual tenant, like individuals are allowed to do that during the duration of the pandemic. In Kingston, City Council just voted to allow an encampment to remain at least until the end of the month. So by no means are we advocating for permanent encampments. We're actually advocating that if you don't have a response to a lack of housing during a pandemic, that you would make these exemptions to the bylaws. Because folks, I mean, if you dismantle an encampment, the visual sight of an encampment might disappear, but you'll just have individual tents popping up in other areas of the city, and that's exactly what's happening. So 
with the dismantlement of the encampments that you had mentioned, folks just moved over to First Ontario Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there is a, a center inside. But uh, my understanding, though, and I listen, by past dealings with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, uh, Nadia, and I know you guys do your homework before you make a presentation to counsel or anybody else, but my understanding here is that based on, on that data that I've seen, uh, if they shut this down and said, okay, everybody, you've got to go to these other shelters, there isn't enough space. Exactly. Exactly. So that's exactly So it. where are they, where are they supposed to go? Exactly. So not only that, but it's not as if our shelters have a ton of capacity to take on more folks so our shelters are full um so that that is the dilemma and that is the challenge for the city to consider so we're just really pushing the city to make have an innovative solution to a real problem and the major systemic problem being a lack of affordable housing in the city of hamilton which is not going to get solved by friday correct I mean, as I said to the mayor earlier in the program, uh, this this COVID situation has not caused this crisis. What it's done is magnified the crisis. I mean, this is something that's been with us for quite some time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, councils, I mean, they've they've got to make a decision about this one way or the other. Yeah. So it seems like after we submitted our written delegation on Monday and they discussed uh, that they'll be going back, they'll be rethinking about their strategy on encampments, they'll be reviewing some of the case law and just some of the UN- United Nations documents that we submitted, and they really are going to have to be creative uh, in response to this issue. Let me ask you about that from a legal standpoint, because that's a different twist that a lot of our listeners probably were not aware of. Because uh, the, the emails I've received from many people simply said, look, it's a bylaw. These guys are, are, are breaking the bylaw, so, you know, the, the city's well within their rights. But bylaws, just as much as, as, as other laws, uh, have to be in compliance with things like, the, you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and a number of other things. And, of course, even UN, uh, you know, International Bill of Rights. Uh, I don't know that anybody actually did that comparator before they decided to, to enact a bylaw like this. Exactly. Um, and that's exactly it. I don't think I don't think anyone thought of COVID when they were maybe making these bylaws. And like you said, COVID okay. is just exactly. I mean, nobody thought of issue. nobody thought of COVID six months exactly. ago. <laughs> exactly. So COVID is sort of exacerbating the issue. But yeah, bylaws, like any other government policy, have to fall in line with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is our federal law, uh, just governing the relationship between individuals and government, and it, it ensures that governments cannot pass policies that would unfairly infringe upon the rights and freedoms of individuals. Not only that, in Ontario, you also have to pass policies that fall in line with the Ontario Human Rights Code. So that's our provincial law, and that gives everyone equal rights and opportunities without discrimination. The reason those two pieces of documentation are important is because a lot of the folks living in encampments would be struggling with disabilities, including mental health disabilities. So it is a vulnerable group. So the answer can't just be take them out, dismantle encampments, and send them on their way. There has to be um, proper, appropriate consideration of the Charter and Human Rights Codes um, as we're dealing with encampments. There's uh, so many different angles to this, and, and, and the legal one is such a very important one in, in a situation like this. And, and I, I, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think anybody is suggesting that uh, that the city's being you know malicious and, and insensitive about this. Uh, I, I think, as you just described, the uh, the argument that you presented to council on Monday uh, was simply, look at you probably haven't thought of the big picture. Here's the other perspective right. that you need to take into consideration, uh, right. and and hopefully that's going to open some eyes to what's going on here. And that is our hope. And our approach, um, 
I mean, our delegation has gone pretty public, but we've been in conversation with city staff for a month. So our approach is to reach a negotiated resolution to the issue. Litigation is really a last resort for us. That's not our main goal. Um, and so our push, like you said, is just to add this other perspective that people may not be thinking of when they look at an encampment, that it is, in effect, a human rights zone. And so there's going to be laws and policies that will impact how you deal with this situation. And, and uh, listen, for people that feel uncomfortable about this, if they've driven past it or seen it and thought, well, this is unsightly, uh, right. nobody, I, nobody is suggesting this should be a permanent fixture in, in, in any city anywhere in Ontario or in Canada, for that matter. Uh, but and, and, again, I don't mean to be trite about this, but the old cliche seems to fit here. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we totally echo, uh, we echo what you just said, Bill. No one is calling for permanent encampments. We don't even think that's the answer. Our, the systemic issue is affordable housing. Um, it's unsightly, but um, desperate times call for desperate measures. I agree. Well, we'll see how council decides to uh, to handle this. It's obviously going to be part of the conversation at their meeting tomorrow. Uh, Nadine, let's stay in touch uh, over the next little bit here and see what happens. I'm sure we'll talk about this again very shortly. Sounds good. Thanks. Take care. Good talking with you. Uh, Nadine Watson, of course, a staff lawyer with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. I also want to bring uh, Lisa Nussie into the conversation. Uh, we've talked with Lisa about homeless issues uh, in the past, of course, here on the program. Lisa is with Keeping Six and also uh, with the Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I hope you heard part of a conversation with Nadine Watson just uh, a couple seconds before you hopped on here with us. Uh, I just caught the tail end of it. and she, the, the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic has been such a great... Um, advocate in addition to this advocacy piece that we've been working on for a long time, yeah. And, and of course, from the meeting on Monday, when, when a, a number of delegations appeared before the Hamilton Council about this, do you think that the dialogue, which you started uh, by by talking about this in the fashion that you have, has created a, a, a greater awareness and a more knowledgeable awareness about what the issues are here? I, ho- I certainly hope so. I mean, I think there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of angles at play here, and I, we've certainly felt and, and seen that during COVID that the issues of encampments have come to the forefront, both in terms of visibility, which you were talking about earlier, and because we've, we've just been so active in trying to advocate for people and replace uh, and make up for the gaps that have been left behind by the COVID closures. So I think that, the, you know, I, I was... I was pleased with the discussion in, in the emergency and community services meeting on Monday, I think there was an acknowledgement that there are like sort of systematic issues that are that are, that are contributing to this problem, that there was a, you know, that uh, Councillor Nan's request that the, the, the section of the city staff that are working on encampments go back and take into consideration our de- delegations and also to, to really really dig deep and, and do an analysis of what that what it means to use a human rights framework approach to encampments. So those are big advances for us, for sure. I mean, you're on the ground on this, and, and, and I know the folks at the, the community clinic and, and the other ones that we've just talked about too, the HamSmart, the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team, uh, they know who they're talking about here. And I, I'm not so sure, and I'm not trying to be vicious here, I heard, uh, that maybe some of the people on council don't know exactly who they're talking about here. And, 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 each, and, and again, you know, there's different circumstances, why those people are in that particular predicament. Uh, as you said, there could be addiction problems, certainly mental health problems with some of them, uh, a, a whole range of different issues going on here. 
And and I, I guess the question that a lot of us were asking, and something something's council is going to have to deal with, is yeah, this is unsightly, and yeah, it's probably not the long-term solution, shouldn't be the long-term solution, but if they're going to keep busting these camps up, what's plan B? Right. That's exactly our question. And we have yet to really hear a satisfactory answer to that question. And I think first I just want to talk about this issue of visibility. And I want to go back, to, and I take some heart from a comment that the mayor made, actually, at an event that we had, um, oh, geez, it would have been sometime last year when you remember the Save the Wesley Day Centre campaign was really yeah, sure, in the yeah. eye of the public. And, and the mayor came to one of our events and spoke at one of our events, and he himself said, you know, he gets complaints from constituents all the time about the unsightliness of homelessness. And, and he said, and I was very pleased to hear him say at that meeting, that he wanted people to see it. He wanted it to be in people's eyes and minds and to know that it's a problem we can't just sort of push to the outskirts and push into the forest and sweep under the ground. But in fact, it needs to be something that we all take responsibility for as a community and as a city. So I think that that's an important point that yet, while, yes, the encampments are more visible and they do make us more uncomfortable for those of us who don't live in those kinds of circumstances, they are all of our collective responsibility. And I think your point, Bill, about some people getting it better than others is really well taken. And it's why we have made it part of our mandate as a group that is led by people with lived experience of these issues and supported by people who support those people um, to say, we need to be at the table. We need to be talking about these issues with you. We understand them. And if you had a chance to read the delegation that we submitted, that was one of the things that we said in in our delegation. And one of our requests was that there be representation of people with lived experience on these committees that are making these decisions about encampments. Because not only is that sort of like a just and representational thing to do, but it's a very practical uh, approach to things because people living it really do get it. And and also, I think people will be surprised by the nuance that is understood by people who are living in these encampments, the ways in which they know that it makes other people uncomfortable, the ways in which they don't actually want to be there, that people would prefer to be somewhere else, indoors, with an apartment, in a kitchen, and a toilet, and that they actually, the people that we're working with, have viable suggestions for solutions and if people would listen, they would be surprised to, to know just how 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 viable those options are. We and have learned from experience. Say, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go. I was just going to say, I've, I've learned from experience of my term as, a, as, a, as an elected official, and certainly in many, many years I've been doing this, this radio show. Uh, the only way you solve a problem is if the problem's in your face. Uh, and, and give a quick example. I mean, you know, long-term care facilities, which has been a problem here for many, many years. All of a sudden, you know, with Doug Ford, the premier, his mother-in-law went into one of these facilities, went and visited, and he saw some of the horrific conditions. Now look at all the reform that's starting to come out of it, because he saw it firsthand. I, I agree with you. I, on a short-term basis, I want people to see these, because the, the, the homelessness and, and some of the problems these people are living with should not be an abstract situation to us. We understand that this is real, happening to real people, and the only way we're going to do anything about it is if we see it right there in front of us. I would agree. 
Anyway, uh, well, I'm hoping that some of the city councilors will see this as well and uh, try to find some sort of a solution here. And, and, and with that, by the way, in, in this discussion, is not just the, the physical presence of, of, of these facilities, but it's the assistance that some of these people are going to need. Uh, and, and that's something that needs to be addressed, too. And that's something that's been woefully inadequate simply because the funding's not been there for quite some time. So it's a multifaceted issue. It's not a simple black and white. Uh, they're not conforming with the bylaws, so they've got to get out of here. This, it's, a, it's a much greater issue. And I'm hoping that they'll give it the, uh, the, the, the time that it deserves and then the compassion that it deserves. And we'll see how they're going to respond to this. Uh, keep uh, doing the right things there, and Lisa, and don't, I know you're not going to give up on this, but we want to make sure that others uh, follow along with you. Thanks so much for the yeah, great stuff you're doing you. in the community. And thanks and so much for the time. we have been really heartened by the support in the community and the, and the response to some of the sort of more uh, ignorant comments that have come from, from places of, of uh, officialness. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so uh, thank you for having us on, and thank you for, for listening, and thanks again to the Hamilton community for all their support on this. It's an this important is not the end of this issue. discussion. Yeah, it's just a, yeah, thanks again, Lisa. Take Great, care. Great, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. Lisa Nussie from Keeping Six and also with the Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to uh, introduce you to, uh, well, the newest member of the uh, Hamilton's Commonwealth Games bid. Veteran Sports Media Executive has joined the team to help the bid for the Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton for 2026. Scott Moore, of course, is a longtime uh, broadcast executive and also now the current CEO of Uninterrupted Canada, which is that LeBron James charity that started about five years ago. I'd like to talk to him about that in a couple of seconds, but lots of other things to talk about. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us on the program today. Well, nice to be here. How are you? I'm doing just fine, thanks very much. Uh, looking forward to the, the discussion ongoing. We've had Lou Forporty and, and PJ Mercandy and some of the other members of this group uh, to talk about this bid uh, and uh, to try to put some meat on the bones about what's going on. Uh, what att- attracted you to this whole project? Well, I've, uh, as you pointed out, I've been around sports broadcasting and the sports business for a long time now, and I've been lucky enough to see a number of Olympics, number of uh, Commonwealth Games, Pan Am Games, Asian Games, and when they're done well, they bring communities together and give them an opportunity to reimagine their cities. Uh, and I've also seen when they're not done well and what uh, what pitfalls to avoid. But I I see these types of games as an impetus to, as I say, bring communities together and uh, and inspire a a city, a generation, a province, a country. Uh, we've seen it in Canada several times in Vancouver with the Vancouver Olympics. We've seen it with Commonwealth Games in Edmonton, Victoria, the original uh, Commonwealth Games, British Empire Games in in Hamilton. So, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a big fan of what these sorts of things can do for a community, and I believe sports can bring people together. You've covered so many of these things. You've traveled there. You've been to a number of these sites. Uh, what is it about international athletic events like this that seem to just rankle people the wrong way? They get a bad name because there have been some successes, and you just listed off a few of them, especially in, in the history of the Commonwealth Games in, in a number of different cities over the last couple of years. Yet too many people are simply dismissive of this and say, ah, oh, they're too expensive, they never make money, and it ends up costing the city a lot more money. Uh, that's happened from time to time, but it seems to be the caricature that most people seem to have in their minds when you bring something like this up. Yeah, and I think that's unfortunate because I think it's looking at things the wrong way. Look, there have been there have been examples of games that have been poorly done. Um, I was in Athens in 2004 where all the construction was done last minute, way too expensive, and those facilities are lying dormant now. 
but I've also been my favorite story of a of a big games that has transformed the city was 1992 in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. First time I went there was in 1989. It was a city that really was mostly industrial. was not It was not a tourist spot in Europe. They had a very similar challenge to Toronto. They had a raised expressway that cut off the main downtown from the seashore and they used the games as an impetus to bury that expressway to regenerate the city and it went from a city that was nowhere on the tourist uh, uh, calendar in 1991 to being the t- one of the top five urban tourist destinations in europe since 1992 every year since so it can totally reimagine a city now these are not the olympic games this isn't you know, a multi-billion dollar project this is a, a more manageable games, more like a like a Pan Am games uh, uh, that Toronto was uh, able to host in 2015. And you look at what those games did for Toronto. They w- were the impetus to uh, have the Up Expressway built from Pearson to downtown. They were the impetus to redevelop the Canary District as a housing district, and it provided community facilities in multiple locations across the GTA and Southern Ontario. So, you know, I, I say to people who don't support games like this, hey, you're, you're uh, certainly entitled to your opinion, but understand that these are not about spending multiple millions of dollars on a two-week festival. It's about using sport as an impetus and a and a deadline to bring investment money from three levels of government into your community and that gives you a chance to reimagine what your community can be a couple of points about that that i i think are very germane to the discussion uh, i was on city council back when uh, we made the bid for the world uh, road cycling championship so the canadian championship and the world championship all in, in the same summer mm-hmm. uh and uh and we won. We had, and uh, the, as far as infrastructure, uh, that accelerated an awful lot of the infrastructure spending that had to happen in the city. Obviously, to fix the roads up and a number of other things, and we're still benefiting from that here in Hamilton. But I talked to the economic development uh, department after the games were held, Scott, and and they told us that that was a real boost. I mean, when the, you know people were returning phone calls and actually sometimes initiating phone calls to say, "Hey, I saw your city on on TV," uh, you know, places like Spain and the UK and other places. Uh, we'd like to talk about this, and he said to what was a boost in economic development because of that exposure like that good exposure can really be beneficial to a community yeah and what uh, a lot of people just don't uh, want to understand or fail to understand about these types of things is that it's not about the amount of money that the city contributes because usually that's the smallest amount it's the amount of money that the province and the the federal government will commit to infrastructure projects that frankly may go somewhere else without the impetus of a games. And I'd, I'd use the example of the Vancouver Olympics when the Sea to Sky Highway from Vancouver to Whistler was completed. That might have been done without the games, but I would venture to say it might not have been done for years and years and years because there was no target to hit. So you know, this is a way of unlocking other investment in the city. And what I love about this committee is they're they're going forward with not just an idea of getting government funding at three levels they're looking at private sector investment which is so important to make this happen because even though i think these types of games are important for whatever hosts 
decide to uh, step forward, you have to look at doing things differently. You can't look at games now and say, this is an opportunity to build cathedrals of sport. That is wasting money. You want to, you want to create the right sized legacy for generations to come, which might be three or 4,000 seat arenas or uh, community facilities that will be used for years and years. Like in Vancouver, the Richmond Oval, the speed skating venue for the 2010 Olympics, is now the centerpiece of the Richmond uh, community and used for not just sport, but community um, community events. And it's it's become you know, a, a real lasting legacy. And those are the sorts of things that people who might not be sports fans or supporting of a multi-sport uh, event like this need to look at as the legacies that they will be able to use for the, themselves and their children for years to come. Scott, are you surprised by the number of, uh, and the amount of private sector interest in, in investment there is in this project? No, because I think uh, Hamilton is ripe for that sort of investment right now. You, this, is, this is a community that is looking to regenerate itself. You know, I've, I was out uh, in Hamilton. I've been living in Toronto for the last number of years. I was out in Hamilton doing something for Uninterrupted. We were doing a, a documentary on the nurse family, Kia and Darnell, oh, yeah. Richard. And so I was out. Uh, we we filmed a segment at a, a great little restaurant in downtown Hamilton. And it's Hamilton is looking to become more of a foodie destination, more of a music destination, more of an arts destination. And though those sorts of things uh, will generate private sector investment. And if you, if you layer on to that the opportunity in 2026 and leading up to 2026 of having international uh, exposure because of hosting the games like that, that will encourage a lot more private sector investment. And I think that's what downtown Hamilton and the surrounding areas need right now. One of the costs, and there's always going to be a discussion about cost when you're putting on a games or attempting to a situation like that, uh, is, let's face it, the majority of, of the cost when these numbers are starting to get bandied about is, is infrastructure. What I liked about the bid, what we know about it anyway from Lou and, and PJ and others, uh, is what this Hamilton bid seems to be doing here, Scott, is making use of existing facilities oftentimes, which is obviously going to have an impact on that bottom line. For sure. Again, you don't want to be building you know, these huge cathedrals of sport. I saw that happen in Athens, and that was, frankly, a mistake. Um, and I was back in Athens a couple of years after the 2004 Olympics and saw some of the venues that I was working at just being uh, run down and not used. You want to work with Mac. You want to work with Brock. You want to work with some of the existing facilities to upgrade them a little bit, uh, make sure that they're usable. And there will be a few facilities that will have to be built, I think a, a, a Olympic-sized pool is probably something that needs to be built, but you want to keep those to a minimum. And remember that Niagara is hosting the 2021 Canada Games, and there'll be a number of facilities that will be built for those games. And again, we're not talking an Olympic Games where you're building an 80,000, 90,000 seat stadium for track and field in the open cer- opening ceremonies. These are these are smaller, more friendly games. And I describe them having done a couple of uh, Commonwealth Games. They just they have a totally different intimate feel um, because so many of us have grown up in Commonwealth countries or have 
friends or family in Commonwealth countries, it almost feels, I describe it as a little bit like a family reunion as opposed to the great scale of an Olympics. Well, we're uh, going to continue the discussion about this uh, in the days ahead. And, of course, as we've been talking about, the uh, the bid committee is going to make another presentation to council in early August, and uh, hopefully we'll get more details and hopefully some more support on that. Listen, i got a minute or two left here, and I just very quickly want to pivot over uh, to your other job now. Uh, after uh, 35 years in, in the sports broadcasting business with uh, Uninterrupted Canada, as I mentioned at the top, this is a, a charity that uh, LeBron James and others started about five years ago. There's a Canadian branch of it right now. Uh, you're the CEO of this, and, and you've already, in, in the short time you've been there, you've hooked up with folks like Serge Ibaka, Marcus Stroman, and a bunch of other talks, and you just mentioned doing something with the Nurse family here in Hamilton. It's got to be a pretty exciting venture for you. Yeah, it's very different. Um, we call it an athlete empowerment platform. It's a, a brand that allows athletes to speak about things that are very important to them. It's funny, I was just looking before we got on uh, at some of the the rushes from the documentary we've done on the nurse family. Now, this is one of the first families in sport in Canada. As most people in Hamilton probably know, Richard played for the Ticats. Darnell mm-hmm. plays for the Oilers. Uh, Kia is the reigning MVP of the WNBA. And we had a wonderful discussion at their favorite restaurant in downtown Hamilton about race, about uh, families giving up things for their children in order for them to chase their dreams, and I was just looking at the Darnell interview about growing up in minor hockey as a, as a kid of mixed race and what that was like, especially now in the context of Black Lives Matter. It's going to be a really powerful story. And those are the, the really interesting stories we get to tell with Uninterrupted. And because LeBron is the CEO or the, the managing partner, a lot of athletes like to be associated with that brand. Well, and you're, you're tapping into, a, I think, a really strong vein here of a lot of athletes that want to give back and want to be part of the community. They've got stories to tell. I mean, I think the one that Marcus Stroman did for you is a guy height doesn't measure the size of people's heart. I mean, he's a little guy, but he's doing pretty yep. well for himself. Yeah, and we just did something with uh, Evander Kane uh, from the San Jose Sharks. He started something called the Hockey Diversity Alliance to talk about race and hockey. We had uh, all nine members of his uh, of his alliance on for an interview and it was really 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 powerful as a guy who grew up playing coaching refereeing and and covering hockey um the it was pretty raw and emotional discussion so it was it was fun to be a part of well i'm sure it's a blast and uh, i, I, yeah, I encourage folks to go and check it out just google it and get some information about that and i'm going to hear a lot more about uh, uninterrupted canada in the uh, the weeks and months ahead i'm sure as uh, you get involved in that scott good luck with that good luck with your work on the commonwealth games bid and i'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about this in the days ahead Bill, a pleasure. Nice talking to you. Take care. Scott Moore, of course, newest member of the bid team for the uh, 2026 Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.